this sermon today is really part two from last week's sermon about joy when we really focused in on chapter 3 verse 1 where Paul says, finally my brothers rejoice. If you remember, if you were here, we talked about this keystone character trait of the Christian that influences everything else and that's joy and we had spent some time defining joy and thinking about that and then we talked mostly about fighting for joy we discussed those two points last week, and then this week we want to talk about killjoy. What, what actually is Paul warning us against that kills our joy? So in order to start, I want us to think about a, something called a gyro stabilizer. Who knows what a gyro stabilizer is? Anybody know what a gyro stabilizer is? Just a few people. That's good, because then you'll think I know what I'm talking about when I try to describe a gyro stabilizer to you. I say, man, he's so smart. Uh, a gyro stabilizer is like a big sphere. Think about a globe. It's pretty large, and it sits underneath the deck of a boat. Not a, not a, not a small you know, 12-foot boat, but a bigger boat and a fishing boat. And it sits in a box, and inside this box, inside this sphere, is a big, heavy flywheel. Think about your, your, washer, your washing machine. Spins around, spins around, spins around. And what it does is when it senses a wave or wake coming, it somehow moves itself and spins to counteract the force of the wave. And so you can Google it later, and you can try to understand actually how it works. I li listened to three videos, and I got was more confused after I watched the videos than, than before. But it's really this remarkable t piece of technology, and they just show you how it works. They take a boat out, two boats out, the exact, exact same boats, and one of them is, you know, rocking up and down. The other one has this gyro stabilizer on it, and it's supposed to take up out as much as 95% of the wave action of a boat. That's amazing really is amazing to see, and especially if you're prone to seasickness, you love a gyro stabilizer. Well, the Apostle Paul is a gyro stabilizer for the Philippians. This little church that's been birthed into Greece and the Roman culture is a church that could be easily knocked over, could easily be tipped over, easily be caught up with the waves of the culture. And Paul writes this letter to come in to say, I want to be like a gyro stabilizer. I want to get into the midst of the church so that when waves come, you don't tip over. And he says it in this way. He says um, in chapter 3, verse 1, I write these same things to you, I'm repeating the truth, which is no trouble for me and safe, circle that word, safe for you. I'm writing things again, which is no trouble for me, just to say them again. And it's good to repeat. You know, the mother of all learning is repetition. And so I'm going to just repeat this, and it's safe for you. And one, one definition for that word safe in the Greek is to not tip over. So he sees this church as a, a church that could tip over because of the culture, and he's coming in and saying, I want to I stabilize you. Now, now, Paul, he's aware of what's happening here at the church of Philippi. First, he's aware of just the ro larger Roman culture that's having its effect on the church. In case you don't know, it, 
Roman culture was full of false idols. All kinds of competitors for people's appetites. One of the major false idols was the worship of a very charismatic, powerful leader who they called Caesar. So the Caesar, this charismatic leader who was at the head of the Roman Empire, he wasn't somebody that, uh, he didn't just want people to like him. That'd be one thing. He wanted people to worship him. And at all cost, follow him no matter what. So he understood, Paul understood this. He, he also saw the culture as very material uh, prosperity. People got very wealth inside the Roman culture. There was a lot of envy and greed. And with this wealth came a lot of social disparities. 25% of the Roman population were slaves. There was a proud military superiority, especially in this particular colony of Philippi. There was massive sexual dysfunction, and it was masked as sexual freedom. Coupled with this, Paul saw teaching coming from inside the church that was misguided or misleading. Now, does this culture sound familiar in any possible way? See, a lot of times you look back and think this this old culture just has no connection. These are very real problems in the church of Philippi and some very similar real problems we have today. So Paul comes in as, as this stabilizer, trying to make sure that this church doesn't tip over. And don't you personally find it helpful to have a person in your life that's like this stabilizer? You probably have somebody like that. You, you start rocking and rolling, your, your world starts turning upside down, and you call this same person or two or three people, and they're like the stabilizer. They come in and say, let's remember the truth. And you go, okay, I'm, I'm remembering this truth. That's what Paul is to the Philippians. So when he talks about this, now this is, he does some heavy lifting here. So you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to break a sweat on this sermon. It's not a lean back kind of sermon. It's a, a lean forward And I want to just sort of slowly go through some of these verses and help us see really the the weightiness of what Paul is talking about here. Verse 2. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, it looks like the rejoicing in verse 1 is over by the time he gets to verse 2. No more rejoicing. He's saying, look out. He's warning that people are going to try to come from inside the church and infiltrate the church, and you've got to look out for them because they're preaching a different gospel. They're they're going to be killjoys, title of the sermon. They're going to sneak in, and what they're going to do is they're going to add something to the gospel. I mean, they're going to be for the gospel, and this is why it seems sneaky is they got all the right kind of language, but then they want to attach something to it. They want to add something to the finished work of Christ. They want to add something to grace. You might call it the the Jesus plus gospel. I mean, I'm definitely for Jesus. I'm, I'm all good on Jesus, but, comma, there's this additive that you have to have in order to be saved. So if you were thinking of it in an equation, it would be Jesus plus something you do, equals salvation. That's how they sneak in amongst you. And it's interesting to me that Paul believes the real killjoy is not prison, physical prison, 
because he's in physical prison and he's rejoicing. He believes the real killjoy is spiritual prison, spiritual bondage. That's what he's most concerned about. He doesn't talk too much about his imprisonment. He talks a lot about how you can get imprisoned in your soul. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Paul here, he's fighting a common problem. It's usually referred to as legalism. In Paul's day, the, the legalists were called Judaizers. These were early Jewish converts from Christianity. I mean, every early convert to Christianity was Jewish, including Paul himself and Peter and all the apostles. So it's not surprising. But some of these people said, hey, you've got to have Jesus. That's right. But you've got to attach yourself to some of these Old Testament customs, especially circumcision which is why he uses this, this phrase, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, they want you to hold on to that as part of the process of your salvation. Now, this battle was the cause of the very first church council, Acts 15. Let me just read you the very first verse of that. Some men came down from Judea. You hear that? The Judaizers. And they're teaching the brothers, this is what they said, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Acts 15, verse 1. You hear that? I mean, we're for Jesus plus circumcision. And it's not a little plus as it turns out. It's something that the whole church has to gather together and say, is this right or not? In the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul writes, almost the entire book is about this one problem, legalism. Listen to what Paul says. Listen carefully. False brothers will secretly slip in and spy out your freedom. So brothers, people who look like they are following Christ and say and have all the right kind of language, they're going to slip in and they're going to see your freedom, your, your, your freedom in the grace of God. They slip in so that they might bring us back into slavery. Such a big word Paul uses. See, he sees this this thin line that you can cross over into, and suddenly you're in this spiritual bondage. They secretly slip in, and when you hear them present the gospel, somehow you walk away feeling like chains have come on your soul, not chains have come off. They say a lot of the right things. They use a lot of the right language, but somehow when you walk away, you feel a little heavier not lighter, not freer because of the gospel. And I love, I love this illustration how um, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read this book, just got to have it as one of those books that you read. And he writes a story about a, a young man named Christian, and he's on his way to the celestial city. He's on his way to heaven. And he's got this burden, his sin, and it's weighing him down. And he's, he, he's found out from a guy named Evangelist, you can get rid of it by going to Jesus. And sort of on his way, he runs into a man, and it says this, if you want to get rid of your burden, you need a visit to Mr. Legality. I love how he tells this little story. And so he says, you need to, you need to exit the way the way of Christ, and you need to have a visit to Mr. Legality, and he can relieve your burden. So Christian turned out of the way to follow the road up the hill to Mr. Legality's house for help. With every step, 
his burden seemed to get heavier than before. You see how he's portraying that? I've got this burden of this sin, and I'm somehow trying to relieve it, and I've found out about the grace of God, and that it's he's going to cut me loose all, just all by himself. It's not going to be anything that I do. And, oh, there's like a shortcut. Oh, okay. I'd like to get rid of this burden myself. We'll go see Mr. Legality. But when you get towards Mr. Legality, chains come on. You get heavier as you go. It doesn't feel like freedom. So legalism, the Jesus plus gospel, this was a big threat in Paul's day. That's why he's calling them dogs. This is a very extreme language for Paul. He didn't want the the Philippians to be fooled. He didn't want them to say, hey, there's some outward sign of your salvation becoming the source of your salvation. We've got to make sure any outward sign, as helpful as it could be, doesn't actually become the source of our salvation. And crossing that little thin line is the difference between being inside a prison cell and outside a prison cell. I want you to hear me carefully. This is a very thin line. And so I can pull the prison cell door closed and you can be just on the other side and you can be in prison and I can be free. So it only takes one little step to put yourself in this prison cell to make some, something other than Jesus the source of your salvation. Certainly there are signs of your salvation. We're not denying that. That's part of your sanctification process. But when those signs become the source, then you have a problem. And let me offer just a couple of ways that I've seen this slip into churches. Whether they really meant it to or not, there are churches which seem to imply that you're saved by the earnestness of your faith, not the object of your faith. There are churches that at least seem to imply, because I've been in one of these churches, they seem to imply you're saved by the earnestness of your faith, not just the object of your faith. Let me explain. When, When I was eight years old, I got baptized on a Sunday night. That's when our church did baptisms, Sunday night and communion. And every Sunday night, including the Sunday night I was baptized, there were these testimonies of people who had given their life to Christ. And I said very little. I I don't remember too much about it except for answering a few questions. But there were always other adults there getting baptized. And almost all the time there were adults there getting re-baptized. And many of their testimonies, not all of them, but many of them sounded something like this. Well, I did get baptized before, but this time I really mean it. I want you to hear that. I did get baptized before, maybe when I was eight. But this time, now, I I really mean it. And what I want to insert there is Jesus plus. You hear that? This time, I really mean it. Now, my earnestness somehow is a part of the equation. And I sat there as an eight-year-old and on other Sunday nights, and I thought... I'm only eight. 
How many times am I going to have to get rebaptized? Why? Because the way I heard it, whether it was meant to be said or not, my earnestness was part of that. It was part of the equation. Now, I'm, I'm sure I have some rebaptized folks here this morning. I don't think it's terrible. But I want you to know that I'm, I'm not knocking sincerity. But no one is saved by sincerity. You're saved by Jesus. And you see how thin that line is? I am saved by Jesus, by grace alone. Not, not by my personal sincerity, not my, by my personal earnestness. The object of our faith, Jesus is saving us, not, not my earnestness. And it's possible, and I've seen this, that people spend their entire lives in this kind of turnstile. And the way it operates is that I really believe Jesus, but I had a terrible year, and I'm back out, and I'm rededicating and rebaptizing, and but I had a bad decade, and then I really got committed, and then COVID hit, and I dropped off. And they never make any forward progress in their faith because they've mixed up some amount of earnestness in part of their salvation. They're not, when I hear this, this doesn't sound free to me. This feels like chains on. I mean, exactly how earnest do I have to be? How many times have I said the sinner's prayer hoping, well, this time, I hope it takes. How many times have I given my life to Christ? How many times have I done the rebaptism term style? And Paul wants to pull us all out of that and say, no, what I'm talking about is freedom. It's something that has been completely done by Christ on your behalf. And all you have to say is, I believe. Now, your earnestness or your sincerity, certainly that's going to go up and down, but that's not the cause. Do you hear that? That's not the source of your salvation because then that puts you in the equation. So it sneaks in, sneaks in. And Paul realizes it was difficult in that day as it, in our, as, as it is in ours that salvation is really free, really free. Here's another way I've seen it sneak in, sneak in. People come into the church, usually very smart. They know a lot about their Bible. They're persuasive. Sometimes they're controlling. And they might say you're saved by grace, but they want to make sure there's a few other added components. And I don't think most of the time when I talk to these people, they say it's the source of your salvation, except for when you talk to them, it feels like chains on. It just comes out as these are the things that you have to have. These are the visible signs that are telling me that I, I know for sure you're saved by grace. And if you're not keeping them, like Sabbath-keeping restrictions, dating practices, voting habits, education of your children, the cars you drive, the color of the clothes you wear, I've heard all these things inside of a church. And they might say you're saved by grace, but it sure sounds like when you talk to them, you walk away heavier, not freer. And they, they sneak in. And you, you sort of leave thinking, I think I'm in the loser's bracket of Christianity. I mean, I'm just not, not doing it right. I'm on the JV squad. I mean, I thought I was saved by grace, but there's another squad here, and I'm on this 
this lower tier. I love John Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be. Long my soul was imprisoned. Remember that? My eye diffused this light, this quickening ray. What does he say? Chains fell off. My heart was free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what I want you to feel today. Chains off. Freedom. That's what Paul wants to make sure that's at the core of the Philippians' understanding of their relationship with Christ. It's real freedom. It doesn't have any dependency on you. You've you've cast all your dependency on Christ. Verse 3. Now, verse 3 demands like a sermon series, so I'm going to really try to compress it here. But just notice this first phrase. For we, now Paul's saying me and the Philippians he's writing to, we are the real circumcision. Now, I'm just scratching my head there and saying, I thought Paul just said, You don't have to have circumcision. And now he's saying, now we are the real circumcision. And this takes a little bit of explanation, a little bit of heavy lifting. So I want you to imagine, first of all, Paul saying to the Philippians, I see your faith. And I want to attach it to something strong, something that's immovable. And he's pulling on the thread of your faith, the cable of your faith. And he's going to attach it back to Abraham. Uh, well, recently, Nancy and I were watching some uh, show, Modern Marvels. You ever watch this show? Kind of a cool show, if you're a nerd. I mean, I'm a total nerd, television nerd. And uh, so how, how they make the Brooklyn Bridge. And there's four, you know, there's four main cables that sort of go across the Brooklyn Bridge. And these cables attach to what's called an anchor point on each side. How much do those anchor points weigh? 120 million pounds of concrete. That's a pretty big anchor. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to pull your faith, and he says, I know it's fragile, but I want to pull it back, and I want to anchor it back here in Genesis chapter 15 and 16. I want you to see the connection with Abraham. And so I want us to see it. So let's turn back there. Genesis chapter 15 and 16. And these verses are really critical verses to understanding the whole Bible as one big story. And again, I'm going to have to compress. So let's just look at chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And God brought him, this is, and he brought him. God brought Abraham outside. So God and Abraham are our conversation. And God says to Abraham in verse 5, chapter 15, look toward heaven. Try to count the stars, if you are even able to number them. And then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. So this is my promise to Abraham. This is God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you this great nation, and you're not going to be able to count your offspring. And verse 6, and he, Abraham, believed God, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. This is salvation for Abraham. God said something. And Abraham said, I completely trust you. I completely have faith in you. So how are people in the Old Testament saved? They're saved by grace, through faith. God comes to Abraham, not because of anything he did, totally by grace. 
and says, here's Abraham, all I need you to do, just completely trust in me. Just forget about you trying to get to heaven. Just trust in me. And Abraham says, I completely trust in you. And he saved. Verse 7, or chapter 17. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant. So here we are two chapters later. God's now going to have a formal treaty between me, God, and you, Abraham, and your offspring. And after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Here's a sign. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's not the covenant. The covenant is back in chapter 15. Does that make sense? It's Abraham's faith. Now there is a sign of the covenant. And you're going to have this sign of the covenant. And if you fast forward into Philippians, what the people were saying is that the sign migrated into the source. Now it's not just a sign, baptism or circumcision. It's actually the source of your salvation. If you don't have it, then you're missing it. And Paul's saying, no, the real circumcised people... We, the circumcised, we go back to Abraham chapter 15 and say, no, we trust in the God who has Abraham as his son by grace through faith. That's the attachment. Now, I realize when I say this, and I, even just saying it in my office, I think, I just can't say it big enough. But I want you to think of it as so huge, this huge anchor point, that the way God has been operating from Genesis chapter 3 by grace to Revelation chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 21, it's all by grace. And you're anchored into this grace that we see all the way from Abraham to the end of time. You might remember this, few of you, if you're older, uh, remember a fun little vacation Bible school song called Father Abraham. Anybody remember this one? It gets kind of chaotic. That's really why you remember it. Father Abraham and many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. What does it say? And I am one of them. You feel that anchor? And so are you. You see what the song is trying to do? Go back and look at the the grace offered to Abraham and his faith. Are you like that? Then you're a son of Abraham. It doesn't ha- the song's not talking about circumcision, thankfully. And he was circumcised and so are you. I mean, no, that wouldn't be a great song. No, you're anchored back to this faith, the same, see, just the same God who never changes is saying yesterday, today, and forever. You're anchored in that God. That's, that's the 120 million pound anchor that Paul wants to put these Philippians' faith in. And that the pastor Paul is desperately trying to do the same thing here this morning. I want you to feel that stability. Point number three, verse four. We'll get to the end here. Paul then wants to use himself as an example. 
an example of somebody who formally did put confidence in the flesh, somebody who did take the signs and make them the source. And what he does here in verses 6 through 8 is he basically pulls out, think about this, a trophy case of self-righteousness. Here's all the wonderful things I've done. Here are all the wonderful things I am. It's my trophy case. When I get to heaven, I'm going to show them to God, and he's going to say, well, Paul, come right on in. Beautiful trophy case. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I got, I got this wonderful, if anyone thinks they have a trophy case better than me, well, my trophy case is even bigger. I mean, this is how Paul, he, it's sort of ridiculous the way he's doing it, but he's trying to make it feel ridiculous. No matter how big your trophy is, I got a bigger trophy. I got more in my case. And then he lists these things. I mean, when, when he lists them, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to a law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law and blameless. When, when, when we list these things for us, because we're not familiar with them, they seem sort of flat. Because you say, okay, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, I mean, you don't know what that is, really, so it just seems kind of flat. But I, I don't want you to feel like they're flat. I want you to feel like they're huge for Paul. This, is, this isn't just some list. This is his identity. This is who he is. This is how he's interfaced with the world. This is his pride. This is who he wants to project out into the world. He's part of the favored nation of Israel. And he's not just part of the favored nation of Israel. He's like in the inner circle. That, that's what it means to be of the tribe of Benjamin. It's great that you're part of Israel, God's chosen people, but you actually have like the backstage pass by being part of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he grew up to be a Pharisee. This is the Pharisee's prayer every single morning they woke up. Blessed art thou, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. So I want you to think about the personal and emotional distance Paul had to travel to write these words in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You feel that? Some massive reorientation i have woke i have woken up every morning with this one level of identity and when i got slammed by grace i got completely reoriented this is a huge thing for paul all these things all the all of his nationality all of his tribal identity all of his zeal all of his personal righteousness they all got eclipsed they all got replaced by Jesus. I want to make a point here that may be a little touchy. This is very crucial today. In a lot of ways, I just want to mention one. We, we live in a very divided culture. It's largely divided by identity. Are you an American or not? Are you an American patriot or not? Are you a Republican or Democrat? Are you a love Trump or never Trump? Are you a mask person or not a mask person? Are you a vaccine person or not a vaccine person? Are you gender this person or gender that person? 
Are you part of the oppressed group or are you a part of the oppressor group? Are you Asian, Hispanic, black, or white? You see, I could keep going. This list of the way our culture has currently uh, split up all these people, including yourself and me, into identities. When I list these things, they're not insignificant, right? I mean, they don't sound like the tribe of Benjamin, do they? No, they, they sound like something that I either am or own or want to stay with or need to get rid of. I mean, they sound very personal. And it's very easy. I want you to listen. It's very easy to allow those identities to cloak your Christianity. So easy. It's so easy to say, well, yes, I am a Christian, but, and here's where it feels like chains come on. But if you don't vote for, and you just wrap something around your Christian identity that cloaks it. If you believe in this way, then it just gets wrapped around. And I'm not saying it's bad to think about some of these things, but when it closes in your Christianity and you can no longer follow Christ by loving your neighbor, then you've covered over Christ. I can no longer have relationships with people in my Bible study, in my family, because of this one issue. Then you see what's happened? You've taken your nationality or your voting history or your whatever, and you're wrapping it around. And Christ is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And even on top of that, you remember what he says? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So somehow if you've got some cultural cloak around your Christianity and you can now no longer have relationships with these people because of that issue, then you as a Christian, my friend, are in trouble. You're in the same kind of trouble Paul is warning. And you might need to hear him say, look out, look out. You're just about ready to take something on and put it over Christ in some way that that becomes the way you identify with people. And the Apostle Paul is saying, all that stuff, it's rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. That's how that applies to our lives today. You can send your emails to Carly uh, afterwards. (laughs) I want to end just here with this parable, Matthew 13. We don't need to revisit it. Paul was the man who found the true treasure. Paul was the man who found the pearl of great price. And when he found it, what does it say? He sold everything with joy. He didn't be like, well, okay, I got to sell everything. That's the rich young ruler. He found Jesus. He found real freedom. And when he found that, he took all of his trophy case and he just threw it into the garbage and said, I don't need any of that because I found the one thing of great price. And I'm not going to let anybody steal it from me. And I'm not going to put a cloak over it in any way because it's so valuable. Anyone here need to hear Paul's words, look out. 
you've somehow made a sign the source. Somehow made something in the culture, something in your historical culture, a cloak around your Christianity. Look out. Look out. Look towards. Look towards the immeasurable worth of Christ. Let's pray together. Or as we sit here and we want to sit under, not on top of. We, we don't want to allow our hearts to leave in a judgmental way. We want to leave getting underneath these words from Philippians 3, 1 through 9. We want to hear your admonition to us through the words of the Apostle Paul to look out. To look inside to see if we might be one of these people. To be careful in our culture, not to be overwhelmed, to be t- to not to be tipped over. Would you, Holy Spirit, do work in every heart, every mind, every soul? I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song about chains coming off and feeling the freedom of the gospel.